On this week's According to Sources podcast, I explore the potential outcomes at food service and uniform company Aramark with Nomura analyst Dan Dolev. We examine the sum of the parts scenarios, contemplate headlines surrounding Mantle Ridge, and debate whether rival Cintas would or even could purchase its uniform business. And then later, I speak with Cowan's John Kernan regarding the Jana Partners' stake in Callaway. I'm Mike Samuels, founder and portfolio manager of Broom Street Capital, and this is According to Sources for the week of June 16th, 2019. It's crossing the tape right now. Let me explain what's happening here. Some breaking news to share with you this morning. M&A related. There's good activism. I think eBay is in that situation. They got a jewel in PayPal. There's bad activism. Unfortunately, JCPenney was a dying company. Examples of activism gone awry. It was not a surprise to me that that deal fell through. Hello and welcome to According to Sources, a podcast devoted to the subjects of activism, deal speculation, and merger arbitrage. Again, this is Mike Samuels, founder and portfolio manager of Broom Street Capital. As a reminder, you can always find me on Twitter. The handle is at Accord to Sources. That's A-C-C-O-R-D-T-O Sources. Or you can write me. It's Michael at According to Sources Podcast.com. Now, before I get to the interview surrounding Aramark and Namir, uh, Aramark and Callaway, I just wanted to uh, touch on a bit of news that happened this past week. And I want to start with Red Robin Gourmet because something happened here that sort of bothered me and I wanted to touch on it. Again, the ticker is RRGB. Now, this is a small company currently around $430 million in market cap, but they do carry significant debt, over $700 million. Uh, You know, it amazes me, and I'll emphasize amazes, um, how traders and investors react to what essentially have become these fake bids in the marketplace. Uh, Now, on Thursday morning, Vintage Capital, a firm that famously botched the rent-a-center buyout, uh, failing to send an extension letter and instead paying a $92 million termination fee, sent a letter to the board of Red Robin highlighted by a request for the company to commence a strategic review of alternatives and then added for fun that they uh subject to confirmation of due diligence they would be prepared to bid forty dollars in cash in the auction process to acquire 100 percent of the company now this resulted in shares rising by as much as 40 percent in two days almost hitting 35 dollars and even prompting an upgrade of the shares at maxim to a buy now, uh, you know, the reason that this bothers me so much is that, you know, for anyone that's bought shares of Athena following Elliot's letter proposing a $160 bid or their letter to QEP following a bid for 875 anyone who's done this unfortunately knows that these letters are essentially meaningless. They, they aren't binding. They mean nothing. The funds can walk away from them at any point without paying any penny in termination fees. You know, it's one thing for Vintage, who already filed in Red Robin in early May when the stock was in the mid-30s. So again, the stock was 25 before the filing this past week. So they're significantly underwater in their position already. And again, this is the same firm that lost the rent-to-center deal essentially due to a clerical error. It'd be one thing for them to request a strategic review. They have the stakes. They have the shares. That's perfectly fine. But to throw in some meaningless, non-binding bid is nothing, in my opinion, but a manipulation of the shares. Now, Red Robin responded with surprise, stating in a letter that Vintage hasn't proposed anything to them privately in the multiple conversations that they've had. In addition, they said they'd consider any, quote, bona fide bid made by Vintage. Translation, this bid isn't bona fide. And in my view, Vintage is simply 
underwater in their position and trying to put Red Robin in play by throwing out this $40 figure. I highly doubt that they ever go through with this transaction, and I'm avoiding the situation entirely. So that's all I had to say about Red Robin. Some other news this weekend, Bloomberg is reporting that Crane Co. is going to take its $45 bid for Circor, that's CIR, directly to the shareholders. This situation is tricky, especially it's tricky from a timing perspective, um, especially with a stock close to 45. Now, Crane missed the annual meeting date already, therefore cannot call for a special meeting, cannot act by written consent. It would take two thirds of shareholders to change the bylaws. So my guess is that this massive premium that Crane is offering and then the sweetener that they'll possibly bump if Circor will engage will get enough of shareholders at Circor to complain. We're already seeing Mario Gabelli complain and get management to cave and engage. Stifle did say that uh, Crane could pay maybe as high as 50 for the asset, but again, not going to pay up based on Sunday, Sunday's headlines. Uh, the deal is probably more of a when than an if, but again, it could drag on for a while. Um, secondly, Bloomberg also writing, Ed Hammond writing a story, Unicure, ticker is Q-U-R-E, saying the company is exploring a sale after attracting interest. The shares are already up substantially following Roche's pending deal to buy Spark Therapeutics a few months ago. And I'm not sure how much of a surprise this is here. Um, it's hard to say what this asset can get as it is with any speculative biotech situation. And the situation actually reminds me a lot of uh, a few years ago when Juno Therapeutics was in play. Remember, Juno was roughly $30 prior to Gilead's purchase of Kite Pharma. Again, these two companies were viewed as peers, and this was in August of 2017. Shares rose to the mid-40s. Six months later, Wall Street Journal wrote about interest in Juno. That sent shares to 70 and then in January of 18, Celgene paid $87 a share for Juno, which was basically a triple over the unaffected price. So Cure probably is a great lotto ticket. It's just tricky to pay up 100% for, you know, from the unaffected price. For every Juno, there's a situation like Tesoro, which again, got as high as 190 a few years back in their first attempt at a takeover situation, only to crash back to the mid-20s following talks breaking down and their drug failing to gain traction. Of course, Tesoro famously bought by uh, Glaxo earlier this year for 75. Uh, so that's that. Lastly, Barnes & Noble finally got a deal, a name that I've talked about a few times on this show. Obviously, this is not how I saw things playing out when uh, the process first began last October. You know, the business deteriorated much more than I think anyone expected in the months that followed. And to be honest, I'm surprised that they that they got the price they did considering they paid 60 cents in dividends or they'll have paid 60 cents in dividends when it's all said and done. There's been talk about an, uh, another bidder possibly coming over the top. There's been uh, specifically this company ReaderLink, which is a publisher they do over a billion dollars in revenue so it's you know legitimate company again i'd be surprised this company has been up for grabs for the last six months this has been a situation with an independent review board so no one can complain that it's leonard riggio controlling the process the activists again filed schottenfeld and a few others complaining the company is being undervalued in the elliott deal which to me is hard to agree with as you know, had the review concluded without a deal, the stock would probably go to four or below. Uh, I, again, I received a few emails and tweets congratulating me on being long. But again, 
uh, while I had the position overall, this was a this was an agonizing process that yielded a neutral result at best for me financially and uh, happy to move on. Okay, so I want to get to the two main interviews I conducted both on Friday afternoon. While I have no position as of yet in Aramark, ARMK, I do find the company interesting and wanted to go deeper on it. Following Paul Halal and Mantle Ridge's success at CSX and prior to that, many successes at Pershing Square, I decided to interview Dan Dolob, analyst at Nomura, who has written extensively on the large gap between the fundamental value of Aramark versus the strategic value should the company either break up or sell itself. Again, Press has stated that Mantle Ridge has been pushing Aramark to consider a sale and that it's exploring the idea of forming their own consortium of PE and sovereign wealth funds to make a bid for the company. The stock prior to reporting was trading in the high 20s and now sits around 35. Here is that full interview with Dan from Friday. Before we get into sort of the strategic optionality mm -hmm. for the company, sure. I just want to go into the fundamentals of the company. You got it. Um, you had had a buy in this until about last spring. Mm -hmm. uh, you downgraded it to neutral. Right. What fundamentally, in your opinion, has changed since you initiated coverage on it a few years ago to now? Right. I think it's a great question. I think the, the biggest kind of philosophical thing that changed is hope faded. <laughs> so what do, you, what do you mean? There was hope that this management team can actually take this business and drive mid-single-digit organic growth margin improvement and really turn it into sort of a mini compass, which is their European uh, competitor, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that time value of that call option has basically gone to zero over time because three years ago in 2016 when they gave their, it was November, November December 2015 when they gave their kind of three-year objective when they were talking about getting margin improving to, you know, to that... 7% from 6% to 7.2%, 7 et cetera. There was actually a lot of hope in this. They're a fresh company one year out of the you know IPO. Mm -hmm. And then in the three years that I covered them, just all the disappointment that you've had in terms of you know, organic growth, you know, one quarter it's up, one quarter is down, uniform rental underperforming, and then you know, doubling down on uniform rental, buying a not so great asset within uniform rental. So all these things. So the hope that something will that will ever be able to drive change in this company has faded. Mm. And that was the thing that was the catalyst in my head that led me to say, you know, I'm giving up. I'm throwing the towel. I'm going neutral from a buy to a neutral. OK, that was it. And it was it was weird because if you think about it, we're going neutral and then we're saying, hey, there's huge opportunity here as an activist. And I was very conflicting on, on that one specific on that one specific you know, move because I deep inside, I believe there's a lot of value here in this company. But I don't think the current management team will ever be able to extract this value. So I've lost faith in the management team. I continue to have faith in the actual business model. OK, so I guess this is a two part question. then. so the management team, in your experience, is not getting the job done. They're not performing. Correct. You know, there's been lots of press reports around, specifically around this one fund, Mantle Ridge, yeah. um, who created originally a special purpose vehicle for CSX, CSX and yeah. turned that around, and now sort of they're back. Uh, or the rumor is that they're back. If you worked for Mantle Ridge, right, what would you do? It's a great question. When we came to to write this report, to put this report together, we basically put ourselves as if we were the activists. So, so you're really kind of preaching to the choir, because we were thinking, what do you need to improve in order to improve this business, right? So the key analysis, if you think about the organic growth of Compass versus them, and there's a chart in our report 
that basically goes through the different components. Let me just look for that one second. It basically, it basically goes through the different components of growth, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think about Compass, which is a 7 to 8% organic grower, the, the business model is roughly 9% of the growth comes from new business, 2% of the growth comes from like for like, and then they, they're losing 4 to 5% on attrition. So 95% retention means they're losing 4 to 5% of attrition. Okay. It turns out the attrition for Aramark, at least per their own account, is, you know, the same. The like for like is probably the same. So they are getting some pricing, etc. So that's the same. The big thing where they lag is the new business. So if you make the build from, you know, to get to 2, two to 3% organic growth, which has been the average for Aramark, you're looking at, say, 5 to 6% of growth coming from new business versus, you know, 9% for Compass. So that four to 500 basis point lag, that's the issue. And that's enormously difficult. You have to knock on doors, you have to win businesses, and that's just not happening. So your question is, this is just what happened. Like the question is, what would you do? Mm -hmm. So I hosted a dinner with a guy that actually said that he, he basically turned around or helped turn around the Compass sales, you know, sales force uh, when, when he came over. Um, it was a very nice guy, very impressive dinner. The guy's, you know, 78, like feels like he's 50, super high energy. And the way he said, you know, the way, again, I'm paraphrasing, I'm putting in my own word, but the way he's saying is like, look, they're just not winning. They're just, they're just not selling B2B like you should be selling B2B. So there's a certain way, there's a certain psychology that goes with selling B2B. It's not just like sell, it's not like selling you or me something on the street. Mm -hmm. that people, you have to incentivize those people in the right way in order to make them want to basically pursue and be aggressive in signing deals. So it's, yes, one side is the food, we'll talk about it in a second, the actual product. But even if the product's not as amazing, you could still sell it very well if you pursue the right B2B strategy. So what he's saying, again, not me, but the experts, so to say, are saying, right. is that they have an issue selling B2B. They, they're just not effective. And the, the, the interesting data point that I heard from him is he still knows people at Compass. It turns out that they're winning, or at least this was as of February, mm -hmm. they were winning like, you know, pretty much every time they face Aramark, at least from what I'm hearing, on a bid, they're winning against Aramark. So it just shows you that Aramark is just not winning enough. And that was the key data point that told me, hey, something is fundamentally wrong with the way they are bidding for new business. Okay, so to, to that point, one of the cruxes of the CSX transaction Correct. was bringing in a superstar CEO, right? That helps. Sure. <laughs> is that possible in this industry? And if it is, is there anyone that comes to mind you don't need someone from the industry. You need someone that can learn and understand, you know, what to do here quickly. You don't need actual, you don't actually need someone. I'll give you a perfect example. Okay. Always good to, to, to draw analogies. So Service Master, which I cover, very adjacent business. They kill bugs for a living. Mm -hmm. A little different, but same thing. Business services, routing, you know, logistics. They, they were dysfunctional for many, many years. They just, they lost customer. They had a huge attrition issue. I had a big sell on them. New guy came in, Nick Vardy, super impressive, came from Wapco. Basically, over the last year and a half, turned this thing around completely. Now, organic growth is improving again. It's mid-single digit. Retention is starting to get better. This guy didn't know how to kill bugs for a living. He didn't spend like 50 years in the industry like Rollins, their competitor, which is a high-quality company, mm -hmm. right? So you don't need that, but you need the aptitude to actually you know, learn what's going on, analyze the issues, and then tackle the issues. So if I, if I have a B2B selling issue, 
I need to hire the guy that knows how to teach my Salesforce how to sell B2B. If I have a, um, you know, I think that's what happened with the comp, you know, compensation. I'm sure you've seen that as well, Telegraph, that right. the comp for the you know, CEO Extremely goes high. up and yes. the comps for like the people go down, right? So the smaller managers didn't get paid or didn't get paid as much, whereas, you know, there's been that, you know, disgruntlement internally, then I got to solve that. There's a, there's a huge disgruntlement. So you need someone that understands the issues, doesn't avoid them, tackles them, and, and creates a path towards transition. Okay, so disgruntlement. Yeah. You speak to shareholders all the time. You speak to investors They're all very, the time. The shareholders are disgruntled too. Right. Not so just employees, both. Why hasn't there been a louder call for some sort of change? It's been the most, I wouldn't say disappointing because I'm not disappointed per se, right? I'm, it's been the most surprising element of this whole process over the last month or so or a little bit more than a month since we've, you know, became involved in this whole activist thing. I'm getting a lot of calls from a lot of frustrated shareholders today. Mm-hmm from a long only guy just this morning saying, Hey, what do you think is happening with, you know, mental, uh, mental ridge, mental ridge, like what's happening? What do you say? What I say is, is, is basically that, you know, obviously I don't know. I mean, my own thing is what I've heard again, I've heard the same thing that you've heard. What was across the wire? I don't have any information of anything other than what was, you know, you know, on the, you know, the thing, but I've heard that their goal was to take it private. And I wonder, this is just me hypothesizing, I wonder if that was too big of an ambition to take it private because you do need to write a big check, right? Mm-hmm. It's a lot of debt. They've what, six billion in debt, five, six billion mm-hmm. in debt and um, net debt. And um, so you need to write a big, you know, a big check. You need to get a lot of money from the banks, you know, where we are at the cycle and given the issues. So you're not buying, you're buying a business which has a going, you know, a going concern. So there's no issue with, with, with Aramark per se. But you're buying a business that's losing share, a business that's, you know, not not at its best. So if you don't take it and fix it right away, you're risking further issues down the road. So if it's a highly levered thing, I could see why the banks would be a little more reluctant on that one. Right. So the my concern, and I've seen someone on the on the trading floor notice that there was a big trade yesterday, and this is just my me hypothesizing, could it be that Whoever tried to take it public is maybe less resolute in taking it private. I don't know that, but I'm just trying to think like who would sell, who's the incremental seller? If there was a big trade last week that my trader noted, you know, noted me about, right. who's that incremental seller? And I, I can't think of any people that I know on the buy side that are big and have sort of given up more today than they've given up in the past. So I, I don't know what's happening there, but it's a very weird. But it was eyebrow raising. It was eyebrow raising. And I can tell you the conversations that I've had with investors up until like two or three weeks ago when people were saying, hey, we're probably going to get an announcement soon. And that was before the news about that activist guy. Mm-hmm. Right. So they were saying and then obviously that thing came. So it it. It, it played like almost textbook until then, and now it's sort of weird. I would have expected that shortly after that announcement, you would have seen uh, a presentation. Isn't that the way it was? Again, you might know better. I mean, I wasn't actively following like ADP and the whole ADP versus um, Ackman. Pershing. Exactly. Right. But there was a 200-page detailed presentation of how to turn it around. I would have hoped to see something similar from whoever is trying to, whether it's Mantle, Ridge, or anyone, that that's what I didn't see, and that's interesting. Right. Well, I guess the the thing is you, you don't necessarily need a 200-page presentation if you're having 
amicable talks with management about going private, right? Then you, then it could just happen. Correct. It's, it's and not, if it's, it's not, not going well, right, if it is hostile, maybe he's not interested in being hostile, right? Now, CSX was hostile. They, I mean, right. that was tough to get That's rid of heard, the yeah. previous CEO, but they got it done. It seems like the Aramark management team, regardless of how this ends, um, will still sort of be under the microscope. Yes, and I think that the key, and, and I've said this, I've lost you know, access to the conference call because of my views, which is sad. I mean, I didn't get on the conference call to ask my because question. Because of your I would imagine. I would imagine because of my criticism. Right. I, I would imagine it's because of my criticism. I mean, the call ended like 45 or 50 minutes into the hour where it's not like we've ran out of time. It's not like there's too many analysts covering right. this talk. You know, that, I get that it happens too, but I've been... I've been banned from conference calls. It's okay. I mean, you know, I've been banned from... There were days where I used to be banned from Service Master, and it was the right call, and I was willing to step up and say, hey, guys, this thing is underperforming, and here are the mistakes. So mm. I'm, I'm willing to take that risk and be objective and you know, service my clients, the, my, the investor clients. Right. I feel like this management team, sadly, has missed its, its chance to turn the business around. I don't mm. think it's gonna. I mean, they're good people. They're you know CEO, CFO. They're good people. They're smart people, but someone else needs to. You got to give someone else a chance to fix it. I think it, it being entrenched now with all the kind of the bad sentiment around it, and also I feel like I mean again from what I'm reading, if you I think uh, Philly Inquirer, one of those newspapers, right. has been following the story. But there's a lot of disgruntled employees. The pay wasn't great. There's there's a lot of resentment. I think fresh blood fresh thinking can do well for the stock. And okay. it's not bad. I think it's in the best interest of everyone, not just... Right. I don't see the point of... If you, if I were the CEO or CFO, I would say, you know what? We've tried. Maybe someone else can do a better job. Why not? Right. So you said you have a 28 target on it, but you acknowledge that to someone else, it could be worth a lot more. Absolutely. And the, the bull case is, is an activist comes in, pursues change... And there's then, you know, I would imagine at that point, there's definitely upside. My, my price target is based on no management change and right. just fundamentals continuing to grind. So let's talk about what like a sum of the parts model, right? Because this is two businesses um, that maybe shouldn't even have anything to do with each other. Um, they should not. They should not. Right. So let's say you simply broke this company up into two and you had the uniforms business and the, and the food service business. Right. What's your sum of the parts on this? Yeah, so we've ran a sum of the parts analysis. I mean, albeit it's a couple of you know, months old, but things don't change that much. It's from, it's from March. The way to think about it is you think about, let's say in a turnaround scenario, so that 85 of the, 85% of the business that's food distribution in the U.S. and you know, mostly trades on the U.S. thing, your comps are basically Sodexo and Compass. Mm -hmm. So if you apply, say, in a blended multiple of, say, low teens, right, low double digits, 11 times, right, on basically Sodexo is trading at 10 times, Compass is trading at about 12 times EBITDA. Right. Um, then, and, and you assume some uh, dis-synergies of about 1% by splitting it about, that's normal, I've seen this, I cover Ecolab, they're spinning off their energy business, which is, by the way, something we've been writing about, we suggested it, they ended up doing it, so I'm very proud of that. Mm. AHS, Service Master, those were... Uh, Service Master used to own um, AHS home warranty. There was also something we've written about. So this is not the first time we're kind of actively telling something needs to be done differently. And in the two other cases, it actually worked. Right. So Service Master spun off AHS. And so uh, in this part of the business, I see about, you know, 
1% this synergies, I think that's acceptable. On the uniform mental side, it's a little more complicated. So you obviously your comp is Sintas, which is right. sort of that parabolic, you know, winner. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but on the other side of the trade, you've got Uniforce, which is trading at eight times. So you're talking about somewhere between eight times and 15 times. Again, the the reason Sintas gets that premium multiple is because they are a uniform rental company, but where they make the upside or that excess organic growth, which is what drives a stock, is by upselling hygiene products and other things. So they're ancillary things, right? It's like fashion. It's the it's all about the accessories. Right. Right. It's not about like it's about the bags and this is not the actual like clothing. No one buys the clothing, but everyone buys the accessories. Mm-hmm. Here it's people buying the uniform. The uniform is the currency to sit at the table, but then they sell a lot of things around it, the soaps and all that stuff. That's how they make. So you know, Aramark doesn't do that very well. Uh, Universe doesn't do that very well. But so even if you take like a 12 times multiple and you add the two, the sum of the parts, in my view, can give you like a mid 40s, a mid 40s price. And, and you know, if if things actually improve dramatically, you could even see upside to that. Right. So wherever the stock trades at today, you know, my my some of the parts here is spinning up mid 40s. So that right. was at, at that time that was like what 40 percent upside today. It's a little. Uh, what do you think about this idea, less. though? So the bulls will say that they should sell the uniforms business. And, and if you look at the multiple that GNK got a few years ago, correct, that if you get that multiple, you have this uh, incredible standalone that, that'll create amazing value. But then on the flip side, I think the only one that they could sell it to is Cintas because of its size, maybe, or the only ones that could pay that multiple is Cintas. And then would that even go through regulation? So let, let's take a step back. Um, so I, I know Cintas, I've, I, I cover it. Um, and, and that's part of this note, too. I wrote a note actually three years ago with my, you know, with my associate. Uh, we wrote a note about how they should get rid. This is before. This is when we had to buy on Aramark. Mm-hmm. The, the idea to get rid of the uniform rental business has been there for a long, long time. The reason Cintas bought G&K for a higher multiple and not the Aramark uniform rental business, and I'm sure they've looked at it. Again, I, I, I bet they did. I'm sure, you know, like, I don't know, but I'm sure they've looked at it. Uh, is because of the unionized state here. So this is a very unionized business here, mm-hmm. whereas GNK didn't really have unions and Sintas doesn't really have unions. So that, that's a, it's a, it's a bit of a, lack of a better word, it's a bit of a goiter that you're kind of carrying along. If you're buying this thing with all the unions, plus there's massive tax leakage, if right. you actually do a straight, because this business was basically devolved, you know, evolved or mostly organically. So mm-hmm. the, the tax basis on this business is very, very low. So the way to actually deal with this is not to buy, not having a, not having being acquired by a Sintas, but to do a tax-free spin-off, mm-hmm. or an alternatively a reverse Morris trust. But then you need like a more, you need someone to want to agree to give out control and stuff. It's a little bit different, but a tax-free spin-off. This is, by the way, what Service Service Master did with American Home Shield, now called Front Door. This right. is what Ecolab is doing with the energy business. That's the best, most classic um, way elegant way of actually getting rid of this business is doing that and letting shareholders decide, hey, do I want to own that uniform asset? And then two years down the road or whenever that time passes, when the tax leakage is not an issue anymore, then Sintas can buy it. Whether or not they'll be... Do you be, think that they would want it though even? The, I think the unions would scare them. I, I think they don't want that because of the unions. Uh, the, the key question you, you asked, and I think it was a very good question, is on the antitrust. Mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm barely, right. I'm barely an analyst, so you know, but it's beyond <laughs> my, my pay grade an anti, antitrust lawyer. But I do know that the one thing I do know is that when regulators look at antitrust issues, 
the absolute market share important and they'll, they'll have like over 50 percent market share if they or close to 50 if they actually bought uh, aramark i think mm -hmm. they have 30 something no now they have 40 with g and k so another 10 percent would be another billion and a half would be about 50 closer right but the bigger issue and that's what i think uh that's the reason i actually think it wouldn't it would happen is they would, would or would not it will it will it okay. would is whether or not you can uh screw your consumers so to say so the regulator is there to protect the consumer so in a highly fragmented space like uniform rental remember there's about 600 smaller uniform rental businesses mm -hmm. it's it the, the consumer is not threatened so you can't really so it's a if if for example they merge and then they start raising pricing the consumer, which is like those small businesses, they'll just call the other guy. It's hard to say it's fragmented, though. If it's there, could be six hundred, but if one has fifty percent, it's not it's, really fragmented. It's, it's not really fragmented on the. It's 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 sort of like one big guy and then a ton of smaller guys. It's not right. fragmented in that space, but there's a lot of mom and pops. Maybe that's mm. the way to think about it. If you, New York City, you'll see like a lot of trucks saying this sure. in this uniform. So, it's not a, it's not the same situation. It's not the money center banks. Where you know J.P. Morgan, B of A, and and so there's really nowhere to go. Like if you wanted to get a bank account, it's hard for you to like. You have to go to one of the city versus you know like right. one of the big ones. That's a different situation. Here it and then they could do you know they could charge you more. But here in this situation, this pest control, a lot of these little industries, it's it, it, it's a lot of mom and pops, and and there's a look pricing here is an issue. So um, it's it. It's hard for these companies to take pricing. It just shows you that there's a lot of competition, right? That, okay. Um, but so I still think, long story short, answering your question, I think a tax-free spinoff. And to me, this is again, it's unsolicited question, but um, I'll answer it anyway. Mm. Um, it's uh, kind of sorry for being direct. It's the stupidest thing they've done, is not to spin it off until now and to buy Ameripride. So. You know, they bought Ameripride and mm -hmm. um, I forgot the other, the um, food, the, the, the GPO business on the same day. Mm -hmm. I was always joking. I thought it was like a two for one deal. You know, if you want this, you're going to have to buy right. that. <laughs> and like, I, I could tell you my, the feedback I've heard from industry people is that Ameripride is not that great and that the, it's sort of like more on a linen, you know, linen basis. And it's not, you know, so even in uniform, there is like, you know, it's the, it's not the creme de la creme of the uniform. That's what I've heard again. This is right. from, I'm not a big uniform rental industry expert, but I've heard it's not like, and I've heard it from industry people that said, hey, this is something maybe that, you know, some of, some of their peers that's, that told me like, hey, this is not something we would have been interested in without naming names, right? Okay. So it was a mistake in my view. And the mistake was that you, what they really should have done is they should have spun it off because if you have an issue, you want to get rid of everything that could be in your way solving the issue. So if your issue is organic growth in North America food distribution, then you, you, I'm talking about, you know, you got to get rid of everything else so that you can focus on the issue. And that's the, you know, right. to me, that's, that was the sign to me that they don't really understand what needs to be done. And that was like, you know, strike so one. The big takeaway really is that if a sale was executed in both businesses, sure, it could get mid-40s. But from your, the calls that you're getting, you think that it's possible that this whole situation, it's possible, might be falling apart. I'm surprised. Let me put it that way. I'm. I'm. I don't know. Right. I'm. So the feedback I'm getting from investors, people are saying, "What is going on?" Including someone just this morning, tells me that the, and the fact that there is no presentation out there, 
tells me that, that the, the time is running out from a visibility slash sort of momentum. Right. When are you going to do that before they report results? Like, this is the time to do that. If you were going to do this, this is sort of that between quarter time. You're not going to do it the day they report results. So unless you think that Q, fiscal Q3 is going to be a disaster, which, which by the way, is not unthinkable. The right. comps are harder. The two-year stack requires an acceleration on the FSS North America business for you to actually think. So I, I, maybe that whoever activist is could be waiting for another disappointment in Q3. Stock would go down and then and then come in at a, at a lower price. I don't know. I, mm -hmm. I'm just. I, I'm the only thing I can analyze is is the fundamentals, not the psychology behind it. But the fundamentals are not looking great now. Okay, so one thing that I do is I, I always end with five questions for the guest. So question one that I had for you is, your coverage universe in particular has been the subject of a lot of M&A this year. First Data, Total Systems, World Pay last year, Aramark maybe. So amongst what you have left, what do you view as a logical name for strategic or M&A or something of that degree? There's scarcity value right now around uh, what Square is offering from a product. So I cover Square, mm -hmm. sort of in between FinTech and, you know, um, there's a lot of scarcity value in terms of what Square is offering that not that many companies have. And if you think about, you know, without naming names, because I'm not, you know, I don't want to, I'm not allowed to, you know, put companies in play. But what I could say is that there are, there are companies out there in the tech world that, uh, that that have a very similar philosophy to, to Square in terms of the the ecosystem, and without you know, without naming names, but that I think Square has something that's built something very very unique that could be very interesting for a lot of other names that are focused sort of like an an ecosystem and and the approach and and what Square has done differently than than everyone else is it really offers a fully cohesive integrated integrated sort of payments thing. So you know, there's scarcity value in the fact that they're pretty much the only standing pure play integrated payment slash e-com player out there that's public right and you've got gpn as well but i have some reservations about gpn i think they're you know being not 100 percent honest about the true underlying organic growth and i published on this a lot yeah you know, that's what got me banned from some of their uh some of their uh, events. That's fine. You're banned from a lot of events i was you know, i'm banned and proud <laughs> it means i'm hitting if I'm banned, it means I'm, I'm, I've touched a nerve and it means that I'm talking about exactly the issue, mm -hmm. right? You don't get banned for talking about, you know, your success in uh, Malaysia. Right. <laughs> you get banned for like hitting on the exact debate. And who would be a logical buyer for a business like that? Yeah, I don't want to say anything here, but I let people kind of figure it out. But think of like, you know, ecosystem, you know, tech. Sure. I don't want to, I don't want something to come out of my mouth because I'm not supposed to put companies in play. But I'm saying there is, there's something that Square created that I think could be very useful for some other, you know, tech companies that's interesting. And that, that's in, you know, despite the multiple, the rich multiple mm -hmm. they're trading it, I still think there is definitely... You know, there is an opportunity in the future that you could see them sort of integrated into, you know, um, someone, someone. Right. <laughs> but so that was uh, actually my. I don't want to. I don't want something coming out of my mouth right. on that one because you know that I'm not. I'm not. I don't want to. You know, make anything that I'm not supposed to. But I think Square looks really interesting from you know, especially from, you know, again, organic or inorganic. Or there's 
huge opportunity for them organically, but it, they also fit very nicely into the sort of like the ecosystem approach. And I think that's an interesting one. Okay. And that's on the, on the payment side. On the, on the business services side, it'll be interesting to see what ends up happening when Service Master, if Service Master does really well, what happens to the industry? Because there's some interloopers in the industry like Rentokill that comes out of, uh, it's coming out of Europe. Mm-hmm. and is trying to be very aggressive in North America. Rollins, which is an amazing company, um, but there's a debate right now on whether or not the share gains that, you know, Service Master used to be a net share donor, and the question now is whether the share gains from Service Master are harder to get. So the question, how the, in five years will the industry still be the same, or will there be more consolidation in the industry between those three players? That's a very interesting question. This is a two-part question. What's the number one subject people want to talk to you regarding Square? The most important subject that people should be talking about, and I think they are, is the uh, large merchant GPV growth and whether or not there's a chance for that to reaccelerate. And is, is this the most debated in? point? Right now, yeah, that's the between most the debated. shorts and the longs. Correct, okay. correct. Will it continue? So, if you think about that, the, the bull case for Square, and this is something we've done a lot of work on, is they have three tiers of gross payment volume. The largest one is basically merchants with, um, call it, one hundred twenty-five thousand of gross payment volume. So that double that for revenue. So mm-hmm. call it two hundred fifty million, two hundred fifty thousand dollars of revenue. So this is sort of a mid-sized food truck, and then going up market to like the you know cupcake store, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. So the question is, can they gain enough momentum in that area, in that retail slash restaurant area, small businesses, to reinflect organic growth from GPV, gross payment volume growth, in this segment? Because what happens with the cab drivers, with the babysitters, with the lawyers who are using the dongle, mm-hmm. that's not that important. Because remember, the key to Square is the cohesive ecosystem that they've built. That's why we've talked about it in the context of other companies that mm-hmm. are building a cohesive ecosystem, right? And you can't really create an ecosystem around the cab driver. There is no ecosystem. It's just a dongle. Where you can create an ecosystem is if you sell analytics and other services to a cupcake store or to a restaurant, et cetera. So a dollar of GPV growth gets circulated more and more often throughout the ecosystem. So you could basically mooch more money from a $1 of GPV by selling loyalty, by selling, you know, competing with ADP paychecks, competing with, you know, a bunch of other products that used to be siloed and now it's all under one roof, which is square. And that's that ecosystem. And then on the other side, you've got the cash app, et cetera. But that's been decelerating instead of reaccelerating in the last few quarters. So they're saying it's low of large numbers. The concern is that, you know, there's other, you know, competitors like Toast mm-hmm. who are being very aggressive. I heard that they're willing to invest, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in R&D. So that's the big concern. The big concern is will it reinflect? Now, it's going to reinflect, and and that's really interesting. It's going to reinflect because they have a deal with Eventbrite. I'm sure you've known mm-hmm. Eventbrite's yeah. Tech 2, where they're going to start processing Eventbrite in the second half of 2019. They didn't exactly say when or, or you know, but we've done work around this. We've written, a, we did a deep dive around this. This should add about two to three points of GPV reacceleration, and that's a large merchant event right now. Eventbrite's not doing well for different reasons, but the actual adding or the addition of Eventbrite into this is an event because this is a very retail-oriented stock, and I think people are going to see the, the perception matters. People are going to see GPV growth from large merchants kind of inflect positively. That's going to create a lot of excitement, 
And then the key debate that I'm getting from investors, is this already priced in? Right. And my answer is it's not because it's not priced in until you see it. Mm-hmm. And that's my thing. And I, the, the, the opposite is, for example, the reason I know this is companies like Global Payments, where I've written research that shows that their true underlying organic growth is definitely not as good as what they're saying. It's pro- they're probably like almost not growing, but it's all kind of like weird things that make their organic growth look really good. But people don't care. They look at the bottom line. They're like, oh, they said high single digits. I'm buying. Right. So the flip side is, is when it happens, there'll be excitement. So that's what I'm getting that. Will it happen? And is it already priced in? Those are big questions I'm getting from investors on Square specifically. Okay. Part B of this question is people love also to talk about Jack Dorsey. Yeah. And so tell me about sort of your experiences with him and meeting him. Sure. And, you know, generally just your thoughts as him as a person, as a yeah. CEO. Mm-hmm. I, look, I, I, the feedback I'm, I'm getting is, is, and this is sort of, remember, I have a bit of a history here because I used to cover Tesla when I was at my prior, when I was at my prior firm at Jefferies. I was a Tesla analyst for a little while. And mm-hmm. so I, I, I guess you could say I'm speci- I specialize in, you know, these, despite being like a business services analyst where, where we actually like get a, you know, a kick is when we do these tech names. And that's, I love doing that. And that's where we made our, you know, our name. So. I think in, in sort of comparing, and it's tough to do a personality thing here, but he's, he's a little bit more, more of a, a stable version of, of Elon, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but what I've heard is that he's very, very much keen on becoming a bank. And you see that with a cash app, right? That's been a huge yeah. success. By the way, we track this, and you know, hap- happy to put anyone or you on the distribution list for my research if you've seen no, it. I get it already. Oh, you got my yeah. stuff. So, um, we tracked it. We just did a report yesterday. Like they're getting more downloads than Venmo, and that's a huge focus for Jack Dorsey. So for better or worse, so the feedback, you know, or, or something I'm hearing is like, hey, yes, they could be a bank, but what multiples are bank banks trading at versus fintech companies? Are you losing by winning here? Right, right. And that's that's the feedback I'm getting from a personality perspective. The other thing I've heard is that he's not really. I don't, I don't want to say you know like. But he doesn't really, he's not as obsessed with the stock price as some of his peers. Let me put it in a nice way, mm-hmm. right? I mean, some people say he doesn't care. I think he cares, but he doesn't, he's more, you know, uh, democratizing commerce, you know, big ideas, you know, working out and drinking like, you know, protein kombucha. shake, kombucha. Right. Exactly. So he's all about kombucha and <laughs> tattoos and, right. you know, like tight pants and like, you know, black t shirts, right? So he's he's that kind of guy, right? He's the epitome of that. You know, like the the caring, so which is great. It's very admirable. But you know, the other side of the spectrum, you get CEOs who are obsessed with the stock price. So I feel like the middle is probably good. And I think Sarah was right in the middle. Sarah mm-hmm. was a good sort of like, you know, keeping it all together. Uh, I can tell you like a personal anecdote, which I think is kind of funny. So sure. last year, when early last year, when Bitcoin was hot, now it's hot again, but mm-hmm. hot. I don't know. We wrote a lot about Bitcoin. We actually did a survey of seeing how many merchants, how many square merchants are going to accept Bitcoin and would be willing to accept Bitcoin. And the answer was like actually overwhelmingly yes. So, But the long story is I've, I've gotten some feedback from the company saying, um, why are you writing so much about Bitcoin? And I'm like, it, it, you know, this is not a, you know, don't write that much about Bitcoin. And I was like, really? Jack goes to every fintech conference to talk about Bitcoin and you're telling me not to write about Bitcoin. So I feel like there was a little bit of a sometimes maybe like a, a not disconnect, but like disagreement internally of like how important certain certain avenues of growth are. Right. Is Bitcoin really because what I think, again, I'm, 
I'm just extrapolating. I know nothing. But my, if I could be a fly on the wall, I could see that conversation. It's like Jack is like, hey, I want Bitcoin. And Sarah saying, yes, but if Bitcoin goes down, if we're a Bitcoin trade, there is another side of that down the road. That's right. For the stock. For the stock. Yep. Absolutely for the stock. Not material for the company, but perception matters, right? So I feel like there's, this is just me thinking. And so long story short, I feel like that is, you know, he's not, I don't want to say he's, he's not a loose cannon, so to say. That's more of like he's our, our other friend, mm -hmm. uh, Elon. Elon. Right. So Jack's definitely not, he's very calculated and very good, you know, very good at what he does. But I feel like there is, um, he's not the typical, let me put it that way. He's not the typical C CEO. Okay. He's a very unusual CEO. So my third question to you is, and it goes along with some of the stuff you said already about sort of um, not hostile relationships with management, but you said you've been not allowed on certain conference calls. Correct. So I want you to identify for me the I, most... I wrote, I wrote a note about it, the uninvited analyst okay. for uh, global payments. <laughs> Can you identify the most either uncomfortable or hostile relationship that you've had either on a conference call or during an analyst day or with a management team? Is there one moment or one team that sticks out to you? Yeah, definitely more on the on the payment side. That was That's still going on, right? So I don't get email. I mean, when I send email, look, I can be very open about this. On global mm -hmm. payments, we have a reduced rating and I've kind of asked questions about the organic growth and and the, the underlying drivers of the organic growth and, and um, I've lost, uh, I don't have any, I don't get any access. So if I'm sending an email to investor relations or something, I don't get an email, an email back. I've tried to get, uh, to go, they've, they've hosted an analyst day last year in, in, in March, uh, at their headquarters. And, and I've multiple times tried to get, uh, on the, uh, on the invite list and I, the feedback I'm getting from the organizer, this is a private event and you shouldn't, you, you know, it very weird. Uh, they, they don't list me as an analyst covering their stock on their website. So I think those things are pretty hostile. I'd say so. Yeah. yeah. I'm an analyst covering. And to, to be honest, the work that we're doing, and this is not being self-praise or anything, it's been uh, very um, debated and, and read by the investor community. So, you know, people that are listening to this and are trafficking payments have, already, have seen our work. And all I've said throughout the whole, you know, three years or so, two and a half years that we've been trying to figure it out is, I just want to get to the bottom of this and get the truth. And I'm, I'm willing to, you know, consider, you know, uh, having a more, you know, looking at it from a more constructive lens if they just say to me what, you know, what they're actually doing there. But it's been such a, it feels like such a black box. Do you ever get calls or emails from some of these more activist short sellers that also want to talk about this name? We traffic pretty much every, every potential short seller in the industry. So I don't know who are, you know, but I've done, I've, well, there's I, some that are more well known than others. The muddy waters of the world. I didn't get yeah, Citron no, or anyone. Uh, like that. No, no, yeah. I mean, the answer is no. The answer is no. Not specifically the guys that you were talking about. You mean the the, the Andrew Lefts of the yes. world? Yeah. No, I did not. I mean, I guess the other feedback that I've been getting is, hey, how come someone like maybe some of the people that you're mentioning, not me, mm -hmm. haven't picked the story up? And and the answer I have is, I don't know. So I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know, and I'm not like I don't speak to these people, and I don't think I should be. But you know, right. I'm, I'm just, I mean, the work we've done on global payments, and I encourage everyone to, to look at this. Is, is there? There's a big dissonance between what the underlying fundamentals are and what the perception is of the company, and it's. I'm not saying anything here is sort of like, 
it you could do whatever you want but i feel like there is a transparency issue here that needs to be cleared about what the actual business the, the volumes are probably not as strong and you know as, as, as they're portraying and they're not giving you the volumes right but you know it's it's a bit of a uh, a, a dissonance or discrepancy between the underlying fundamentals of the business and you know what the perception is on the street for a business that trades in the 20s Got that's it. that's what i've been saying nothing here sort of more nothing more nothing less next question in your career what would you view as your best call and then your biggest mistake well the joke is getting into this business it's probably the biggest mistake no i'm just kidding uh i'm not uh, <laughs> Tesla was my best call. On the long side. Yeah. So I had a 300. This is my prior, prior shop. I was a, I had a, I was a different firm. And but is it fair to say that that's even played out yet? It has. No, it, it, it no, it already has, right? Would so you still peak. have a 300 target on it today? If you still well, let me, let me, okay. So I don't. Without cover. getting into a really long conversation. Correct. Correct. I don't cover it today. So right. technically I don't have a view, but I'd say the. I would have, I mean, if, if I covered it today, I would have to think very deeply on whether or not it, but this was pre Elon going crazy days. This right. was like when this was 2015, the stock was in the low 200s. I had a $350 price target. And the key there, the key, the key work that we've done there, and it's not just, I don't just make calls. I surveyed 150 Tesla owners. So what I did is I basically uh, put people in charging stations in California and I paid them to ask questions. And what I found out is that the typical uh, Tesla buyer is not what people think it is. It's not the, you know, it's not the um, Mercedes S class. It's not the BMW guy. It's everyone. So people, and this was Model S, this was before Model X and before Model 3. This was just that. That was the work that I did. And that work basically showed me that people are putting their, there's so much, you know, wantingness to get that car that people are putting their life savings into that and are willing to invest a lot of money. So that was that, that basically opened up the demand thing. So what we did is we looked at the different models that people owned before they had a Tesla. And by that, we reversed engineered into the TAM because people thought this was either tree huggers, the mm -hmm. Prius and the Bolts or oligarch. Right. Russian oligarch. So the answer is it's you, me, and, and, and everyone else that actually could potentially own it. That was an, an eye-opening experiment, and that 350 kind of played out what the next two years are going to look like. I have no idea. I mean, I kind of do, but because I don't cover it, I don't want to get right. into this, but I, you know, we'll take that one. As, you know how they say on the conference calls, we'll take that one offline. Right. <laughs> but that was a good call. So that was the good call. The, the biggest mistake... I think I was, I think from a call perspective, the biggest mistake was Cintas. I had a great call on Cintas. I mean, when I covered it, even at Jeffries, it was a 40. I had a buy, it was going up. You know, and then I downgraded it to neutral um, a, year and a, like a year and a half or two years ago, and the stock was at 130. So this was one of the cases where the analysis was spot on. But mm -hmm. I didn't see the... I always miss this one. I always mess this one up. The, tr the forest through the trees? Mm -hmm. Okay, I usually say the opposite. 
uh, in Hebrew, it's the opposite. But um, so I missed it. I didn't see the forest with the trees. So I downgraded because I thought that the GNK acquisition, and I went back to their Omni acquisition in 2012, and I looked at the organic growth breakdown. What happens is once it laps, they have an issue kind of re-energizing it, so organic growth decelerates. So what I thought would happen is that organic growth decelerating would actually weigh on the multiple, but the market breezed through that, and the stock's been a monster. Yeah. What is it? 225? 220, no? 230-something. Yeah, it's been a monster. I mean, you could say now it's maybe, look, so that now, now it's the time to maybe be a little bit more, you know, um, I would say careful with it because of where we are in the cycle. But that's a different discussion. But that was a, that was a big mistake from, a, like, getting the fundamentals right, but not understanding that people are going to see through the fundamentals and, you know, kind of like, buy the stock because say, I don't care. I know it's a great company. I know they're going to reaccelerate. It's a bump in the road. And I, I was thinking too short term on that one. That was a mistake. Last question. So I was talking to Tim Ramey once, who is a, an analyst currently at Pivotal, but he's had a 30 year career mm -hmm. in the consumer space. Sure. And uh, he said to me, he was like, Mike, you can only really as an analyst have a, a true handle on one or two companies in your coverage list where you like really feel like an ax in the name. Yeah. Do you believe that to be true? And if so, which names would you say you have the best handle on? Okay. Yeah. I think, you know, on the long side um, and payments, I think Square. I think, you know, we were like, we had a buy in when stock was at 14. And, you know, kind of, I don't want to go through this, but like, you, we really feel like we are the, you know, we're, we're synonymous with the price target and the success of Square. We, we get that a lot. You're the Square Bowl, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I feel yeah. like we're the, we're the go-to. I mean, there's other names where I know I'm not the go-to guy, but on Square, I think we are on, on that side. And on the, on the other side, on, on the short side, I, I definitely think it's global payments because I think we tell a story on global payments that no one else tells because there, is no num there are no numbers. If you look at their press release, they don't disclose anything. So we tell the story behind the story of our story, which we think is the right story based on our research that no right, one but it hasn't been the right stock story yet. Correct. It has not been the right stock. But we're in terms of the, I thought the question was who is the, the guy that knows the stock the best and gets the most calls on the street on the stock. That's what I was maybe thinking. Not You mean like what would the best call we've had? No, meaning like in terms of uh, where you really feel like you are on the pulse of the quarter. I see. You, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, that one. Um, okay, so on that one, I would say definitely more on the pest control side. That's been, you know, like na names that we've, because I cover both Rollins and Service Masters. So those be names where we've been like very negative when you should have been negative, which is in the prior management, changed our views at the right time, and then it's been, have been riding the massive, you know, Service Master surge until now. And for Rollins, we've been you know, just perma buyers, it's been a great start right. too. So I feel like that's where we've been very kind of, you know, hands on. We understand like, you know, the little intricacies there. Got it. And we've got, surprisingly, we've got that one right. right? I agree with you, GPN, we've got wrong, but there's always tomorrow. <laughs> for now. Exactly. Thank you again, man, for you got coming it. on. I My appreciate pleasure. it. Shalom. Shabbat shalom. My thanks again to Dan Dolev, analyst at Nomura, for all of the insights regarding Aramark and other things. I'll end today's podcast by exploring the latest activist situation. Jana partners nearly 10% stake in Callaway Golf, 
ticker ELY. I spoke on Friday with Cowan retail analyst John Kearney concerning what could be done to unlock value at the golf slash clothing company. And here is that interview. So just uh, to start, um, sort of, you know, Callaway does have a lot of moving parts at this point, especially with some recent acquisitions. Um, but you remain neutral on the company. Walk me through what you believe could be done strategically. You know, look, they've been acquisitive um, across a lot of different categories the past several years, whether it's Travis Matthew, um, you can go all the way back to the acquisition of OCO, which was done, all, you know, way back. Um, the, you know, Jack Wolfskin, I think, threw investors for a loop. They, they're getting farther and farther away from their core competency, which, you know, is, would be considered, you know, golf equipment and golf balls. Um, they're, you know, probably the premier golf brand in the world, but the you know, this outdoor apparel company acquisition certainly it's going to change their capital structure and it, you know, it's going to take some resources and, you know, away from potentially the golf business and towards, you know, the growing that apparel business in North America. And that seems to be the big growth opportunity for Jack Wolfskin. Okay, so let's say you were, hypothetically, you were an activist in this stock and you could create value. What would you do? Sure. Um, well, certainly the top golf angle, I think, is the biggest, you know, what is a big X factor, right? They own 14% of a company that we've written about that we think could be worth, you know, easily 4 to $5 billion. Um, yeah, you. I see you wrote in a note last uh, fall that you think it's possible this could be worth 6 or $7 billion at some point. I mean, this, is, this concept is scaling and gaining a lot of you know it's it's one of the most popular consumer concepts in the united states right now um and the growth has been tremendous um there's a lot of white space for new locations they're getting into hitting base so top golf is you know the real deal and we don't know their margin structure so it's hard to it's you know it's not easy to get into what their ebitda and cash flow looks like but you know, you can venture to say it's a mid-teen EBITDA margin, and that's a lot. Yeah, if they keep growing units and having the success that they're having, this you know this will be an eventual IPO, and it's going to be worth a lot of money. And Callaway, you know, with a 14% stake, you know, the core golf business was not trading in a very was not trading in a lofty multiple at all. And, and in terms of just because I don't know the full backstory on how they accumulated the stake, if they were to say sell their stake in an IPO and and it was worth five hundred million dollars, hypothetically. Um, what were what sort of tax consequence would that be? Good question. We we just assumed a twenty percent tax rate on whatever flowed to them. You know, if they monetize their whole stake, mm -hmm. I don't know if that's right or not. You know, the cost basis is pretty low, so it, there will be a there will be a tax bill. But you know, I, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I don't think, yes, it's still clearly worth a tremendous amount of value to the shareholders of Callaway. Right. And, and I know you don't obviously cover private companies, but you follow the industry. And and so do you have any idea of when any sort of top golf, you know, IPO or monetization could take place? Or do you have a feel on that? Last year, we thought there was a chance it would be this year. And then I think they... Uh, they're, in they're still in investment mode, and I think that you know maybe next year. I think within the next two years would be, yeah. You know, okay. Uh, where it's, it's, it's public in the next two years, I think. 
Got it. Um, do you think the company would ever just consider an outright sale? I think if the right offer came around, they would. I mean, given how many moving pieces there are to the company and valuing the stock and um, if, you know, that's, yeah, if it created value for shareholders, there are, I don't think they'd be afraid to do it. There, there are um, analysts and some investors who have said that they should just divest the Jack Wolfskin acquisition already, that it just, it just doesn't make sense. They're not, they're not, they're not going to do that. I mean, right. I, I, you know, the stock had a horrible reaction to the announcement. I cover some of the outdoor brands. I was shocked when they did it. Um, but, I, you know, I do think their core golf equipment business, which has been on a tear, faces pretty difficult comparisons going forward. And, you know, you're going to see a slowdown in that business. You know, it's, it's a normal, you know, the product cycle probably slows a little bit. I mean, they're, they're making the best equipment they've ever made, the drivers, the putters they made right now, the technology of them is truly, uh, it's tremendous innovation. I mean, you've got to give them credit. They're a very innovative company when it comes to core golf equipment. I just don't know. Um, you know, they, I just don't know. It, the Jack Wolfskin acquisition to me had a lot more risk than upside. I guess my question to you is that you obviously see the value and the different moving parts of it. What would make you want to just upgrade and become positive on the stock? Yeah, you know, we haven't been negative. Um, maybe we were post-Jack Wolfskin just for a period of time, but we I've clearly, as an analyst, I clearly missed this stock ahead of their you know, product cycle and the core calorie business a couple of years ago. Um, I think the stock got overvalued. Obviously, the market's kind of telling you that when it was in the you know, mid to high 20s. But, you know, I like the management team. I think, you know, they're exceptional at golf equipment. And, um, you know, the innovation they've had there is, is really strong. It's clearly, it was getting attractive. My team and I talked, you know, pretty extensively when it got down to like in the fourth below 15. And, you know, we ended up, you know, we did obviously didn't end up acting on it. But I, th there was value down there. Um, you know, just the, long-term durability of the core Callaway brand there's there's definitely value here I could see why Jan is interested right just a, just uh, I just was just wondering because you've covered the stock for uh, a while I mean is there a direct correlation between just the popularity of golf the ratings of golf on TV and then the sales of Callaway I don't think so. I think the I think the true the customers with the highest lifetime value for the Callaway brand are really hardcore golfers that are willing to pay $900 for a set of irons and $500 for a driver. That's not the guy who's like, you know, super jazzed up about, you know, whether Tiger Woods wins the U.S. Opener. I mean, they care, but like the casual golfer who likes to watch it on TV is not worth a tremendous amount of value in my mind for the Callaway brand. The Weekend Warrior, it's not the Weekend Warrior, so to speak. It's the core hardcore golfers uh, that really drive a lot of the value. Mm -hmm. um, so didn't just, you know, while I have you just switching away from Callaway, are there any other companies in your coverage universe that you find compelling from a strategic or special situations perspective uh, in the same way that like, let's say we've seen Gap Stores is doing like a spinoff. Do yeah. you see anything else like that? Not really. I think... Um, we've seen you know, VF we've Corp some, do some, some of stuff. VF Corp has done a lot. You know, the VF Contour Brands analysis right now. You've got Contour Brands trading with like a potentially like an eight or eight nine percent dividend yield down here. I mean, at, you know, nine times free cash flow. 
with you know the shareholder turning over of the shareholder base probably coming to its tail end. I think Contour is priced for doom to an extent. I mean, I don't have a, a, a rating on the stock, but anytime a, a company gets that down to that type of cash flow with dividend multiple and dividend yield, um, that you know it's clearly an interesting situation. Um, you know, other than that, I would say that it, most of the stuff that's working in my sector is really like, um, you know, growthy names like Lululemon, Nike, BF Corp, um, the beaten down values you know, type names in retail have really been, you know, just like Gap. I mean, the stock's probably down 33% since they announced that. Well, I, uh, I end every interview with just five quick questions. Um, sure. So I'll get you going. So number one, uh, you cover a slew of retailers, but if you had to only if you had to work directly for one of them, who would it be? Lululemon. Because Lululemon or Nike. I, I and there's you know, there's other ones that are. You know, I would say Lululemon. I, I think just um, I think they have the, you know very loyal community of of brand followers. Okay. Number two, um, brands come and go over the years. Name which name, either in or out of your coverage universe, would you say you'd be the least surprised to not be around ten years from now? JC Okay. Um, number three, ten years ago, mall checks were the best barometer for retail health. What would you say it is today? I would. Yeah, it's. We've moved away from the mall check era. Yeah, so much. So much is happening in the digital space. I think you know, your brand's presentation online and the data that you're able to collect from your community of users in the digital space is so is so critical at this point. Um, so you know, the digital space is is incredibly important at this point. Uh, question four: Present company ex- excluded. Uh, who would you say is the most influential retail analyst? The most influential retailer. I have to say myself. <laughs> I said. I said. Present company excluded. Oh, present company excluded. Um, jeez. Sorry. <laughs> um. You know, I don't. There's so much. There, everybody's different, and everybody, some people are good at some things and are not very good at others. You have some analysts that are very good at corporate access. You have others that are good with the financial models and stock calls, so it really depends on on what you're you know what what type of analyst you're looking for because it's everybody's really different at this point. To be totally honest, I I, I don't know. <laughs> you're asking me to like grade my competitors, and I, well, I, I, I just what, them, I'm more just asking some of them do some things really well, some don't. Usually, like they're good. Yeah, you know, usually, you know, it's different. Uh, more just like who whose work do you find to be very well respected? Whose work do you respect and think it's just well thought out? Ah, uh, you know, I work with Oliver Chen. I think he does a good job on like the corporate access and access to executives, mm-hmm. um, public, you know, public and private. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I'd rather say him than somebody that, that doesn't work for my company. Gotcha. <laughs> Okay, um, and then the last question. Uh, I know you don't cover Gap stores, but there's a saying that if you're comping minus 10% or more that you're in sort of a terminal decline. Um, do you believe this is true and could eventually be the case? You know, people are obsessed with comps. 
Um, just a, and, you know, we look at a lot of different metrics. Certainly, you know, comp is seems for sales are a good judge of how relevant you are in the moment. I think a lot of companies are using way too much working capital and SG&A to drive some of these comps. So uh, the whole financial model across retail has needs it needs a rethinking. To be totally honest, there's way too much slow turning inventory and working capital. Um, it, clearly, it's an incredibly competitive environment. I, I have no idea what the future for gap holds, but certainly a smaller footprint. Mm-hmm. Okay, thanks, John. I appreciate the time. You bet. Have a good one. Oh, so. Bye. Well, that is going to be it for the According to Sources podcast. Uh, Again, my thanks to Dan Dolev and John Curdy for coming on the show. As a reminder, while this is a weekly podcast, I sometimes tweet in real time. The handle is at Accord to Sources, or you can write me directly, michael at accordingtosourcespodcast.com. Again, this is Mike Samuels, founder and portfolio manager of Broom Street Capital, and I will see you next week.